This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, December 29th of 2016, it's episode 102. In this episode, Adapting to the Dice, plus Games We Want to Play in 2017, Theater of the Mind Combat, Handling Frustration, Needing an Artist, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, what's up? Nothing all that exciting. I had a nice uh, Christmas holiday. How about you? Likewise, nice Christmas holiday. One thing I will say has been very nice. I was talking last episode about vacation time. I have discovered that I did something right with my vacation time. Oh, Previously, yeah? Yeah, last couple years I've taken off like two weeks or a week and a half or something like that after Christmas. Which, all you know, right. very nice. Two weeks off. Pretty cool. That's most of my vacation time for the year. Big block of time. This year, I took a week off before Christmas and then a week after New Year's. My wife was far happier. She just like having you around for the times when the kids are around more? She does a ton of prep work for Christmas. She cooks for our Christmas dinner. She cooks for the Christmas dinner with her family. There are all the lead up family events to get the kids out to. And having me home to wrangle children turned out to be incredibly helpful. Plus, it also got you some more time with said kids, so that's also good, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would have had that time either way, but this way she she had more time with somebody there helping her during that rush of, we have all the family to do. <laughs> you can kill two birds with the proverbial single stone there. Yeah, uh, her parents are divorced, and so we kind of have three sides of a family to deal with. Uh, and I thought two is difficult enough. Right. And then there's extended family and there's work Christmas parties for me. And, you know, we want to get together with our friends at some point. There's just a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And there's like two or three kids things we have to do. And those will only increase as we go. So just by accident, because of the way my my vacation schedule worked out working around coworkers, I hit on something much more helpful. So I'm going to try and do that again next year. Cool. How about you? How was Christmas? It was good. Uh, we did the typical, uh, we headed down to see my wife's family, did that for about the first half of the day, came back and saw mine in the evening. Very nice. Couple of good meals. And for the first time in 15 years, I actually had some time off around Christmas instead of just the day itself. So that was nice. Madness. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't have to go back all like tired and everything and try and wrangle with people who want to do returns. What is this you say? I actually get a reprieve from this finally? Yeah. So that was that was a very welcome change. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and uh, it'll be another welcome change to have another three-day weekend this weekend for New Year's. So that'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be great. This kind of leads me into a, a segue. We're mostly retiring, but sort of modifying our New Year's resolution tradition here. We kind of realized that this was more... Some of it was, was pride. Some of it was the opposite of pride, where we just kind of beat up on ourselves for not doing everything that we wanted to. And we realized that some of it just wasn't all that entertaining, but we still do want to talk about gaming, and we'll be getting to that a little bit later. Because yeah. there's some neat stuff that came out this past year that Grant and I want to try. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention. Traditionally, every New Year's resolution list anyone makes has something to do with personal fitness. And we're actually going to be talking about that in a couple of episodes, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's going to be a really fascinating episode, and I think really cool for a lot of people. I think we have more guests lined up for that than we've ever had for any episode we've previously done, too, so that'll yes. be interesting all by itself. It'll be really cool. Look forward to that. You're going to like it. Yeah. One other thing, um, we realized a little while ago that we had not been crediting our graphic designer in our outro credits. So, Ruben, we're sorry, and you and your 3D6 design company have credit in our outro now. You do good work, and people should know about you. Yeah. We kind of downplayed the New Year's resolution thing, but we do want to talk real quick about games that we are looking forward to playing in this coming year, in 2017. Why don't we start off with the one that we both backed on Kickstarter, because we're both kind of chomping at the bit for this, and we actually had the designer on a few, well, more than a few now, episodes back. But yeah. Yeah, so this is obviously Unknown Armies, 3rd edition. We had Greg Stolze on for that. First of all, I've been following uh, Cam Banks on Twitter. He's the guy doing layout, graphic production, um, really kind of leading up the production of that, not the writing. 
Whew, that looks good. Did you get all five books or just the three? No, just the three. I got PDF copies of the two uh, stretch goal books that were written. I'm going to need to buy those separately when they come out. At the time when the Kickstarter was going on, I just had enough budget for the digital version with all three in it. So Yeah, so I have to point out something really cool that they're doing with the deluxe set. Okay. Uh, It's a boxed set of those three books. Yeah. The slipcase is not just a useless box. It's a button-up case that unfolds into a GM screen for Unknown Armies. Which is about the coolest thing that I have ever seen or heard of in terms of GM screens. Yeah, it's like, hey, here's a way to transport your books. And display them. Looks really good. And then it becomes something useful when you take them off your shelf rather than, hi, I'm here to hold up some extra space on your shelf because slipcases are thick. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. The last one is probably the most readable RPG I've ever had the pleasure of, you know, reading. And uh, I'm looking forward to just, you know, sitting down and reading these books, let alone playing them. So oh, yeah, me too. Me too. Although I have um, kind of advanced copies of the PDFs and I've determined I just don't do well reading books like that as PDFs. I need to sit down with a physical book or I just, it won't click in my head. I've got a decent sized color tablet, so I can usually get away with that sort of thing. I also have really good eyes. Who knows how much longer that's going to last. I'm 38, but for now it works, so. Yeah, I only have one good eye, so even with my glasses, uh, there's nerve damage in my left eye, so it doesn't actually focus on anything. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) I'm fine working on monitors all day. It's what I do. But if I'm trying to read something, I need a book to help me process it a little better. And that may just be a tactile thing more than a reading thing. I don't know. But Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why e-readers never forced physical books out of the marketplace like some people were predicting that they were going to. As it turns out, humans like books. Yeah. I mean, I would still much rather read a physical book than a, you know, a PDF file or an e-book. Sometimes the economics of the situation just dictate that I do so. Yep. Next one on my list is Fellowship, and this is one that I know I'm going to be playing. We're kind of in the early prep stages for it. I talked about this before, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's an apocalypse world game, and I'm excited by that because I've never touched anything using that rule system. It'll be good to give that a try. Yeah, I'd really like to try something in the apocalypse world system too. Uh, I've heard so many good things about it, but I've never actually sat down and played it. In fact, I hate to admit this, but most of what I know about that is secondhand. I've never really even read one of the books, so I need to fix that at some point this coming year, too. Yep. Uh, The first one I've got on my list is Feng Shui 2, which is, speaking of Kickstarter, something that I backed when that was in Kickstarter. In fact, actually, things written by people on the Kartos podcast are going to be a theme in mine, but um, I I like the idea of... uh, a role-playing game centered around kind of that action movie ethos. And apparently the the first Feng Shui was fantastic. It's one of the very few games that the guys over at System Mastery have gotten excited over. So that should tell you something. And the, uh, the second one is purportedly better in every conceivable way. So I've done some reading, but I've never actually gotten a chance to sit down and do anything with it. And so that's one I'm really kind of hoping I can run, play, even watch a con game. I'm not picky. I just want to see it in action. <laughs> yeah. All right, next one from you, since you've got a couple more. Dogs in the Vineyard. This one is by no means new. This one's been out for quite a while. It was one of the first kind of indie RPGs to make a splash. I own a copy. I've read it. I've never played it. I would really like to try that out and play. I would have to find a group I really trusted and that were also bought in, though, because a lot of the game revolves around escalating conflict, and I think you want a good table rapport for that. How about you? You've got another one on here. Actually, I have two. And the first one, I'm not sure, is coming out in 2017. All right, what's that one? Pillar of Fire. This is a sci-fi RPG, again, actually, that Cam Banks is working on. I think he's writing this one. But this one's pretty cool because it's this big, epic sci-fi RPG. But one of the conceits of it is that there are systems in place to let characters initiate large-scale social change. Hmm. It's kind of about people in aggregate as much as characters. So I don't know a whole lot about it, but what I've seen talked about makes me really curious about it. So if it does at least kickstart in 2017, I am going to be paying it a lot of attention. Yeah, that sounds really cool on a conceptual level. Yeah. What's your next one? Uh, My next one is Gumshoe, actually. (laughs) I have a significant portion of the Gumshoe product line 
which is not quite GURPS large, but is getting up there. Pelgrane has put out a lot of stuff for it, and I really like the looks of it. I think a uh, system built around investigation instead of just combat is kind of cool. Um, I'm really anxious to give that one a try. I like the uh, Ashen Stars and Knights Black Agent settings in particular for it, so hopefully I can get one of those going at some point. Looks very cool to me. Excellent. I've got one more, and this All is right. one that I just just thought of while you were talking, and that's A Scoundrel in the Deep. I've never even heard of that one. So this is a really, like, the indiest of indie RPGs, okay? Okay. James D'Amato of One Shot, he recorded himself playing it with Corey of the Party of One podcast. Party of One is a podcast that specializes in RPGs that are for two people, a player and a GM. Hmm. Speaking of Gumshoe, Gumshoe one-to-one seems like that would be very much in their wheelhouse. Yeah, and I'm sure they're interested in it. But obviously a lot of these games are indie. Yeah. Uh, Reflections, for example, by Jim McClure. Other games like that. But A Scoundrel in the Deep, it's a game printed in Epidia Ravicol's Worlds Without Master magazine. Epidia Ravicol's the guy who did Dread. All right. It's a game for two people, kind of hearkening back to that 60s to early 70s swords and sorcery and sandals style of heist uh, fantasy. Fofford and the Grey Mauser kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly that. And you play a character who has gone, and the player, I should say, plays a character who has descended deep into someplace very dark and has acquired a ruby. Okay. For reasons. And... Part of the setup of the game is coming up with a reason why he's got this thing. Maybe it has magic properties. Maybe he just needs the money for something. Maybe he's just greedy. All sorts of reasons, right? Right. The mechanism is what's awesome. It's played with matches. And I'm guessing those get burned as time goes on? So the way it works is, you know, you and the GM are kind of describing back and forth what's going on. And I don't know everything about this game, so I'm just kind of going off of this particular Party of One episode and what little I have read about it beyond Worlds Without Master, which I don't currently have access to. But the GM, when you encounter something dangerous, tells you to strike a match. And then he tells you what the danger is, and you have until the match burns out, or you have to drop it because it's going to burn your fingers, to describe how you get around this problem. Oh, that's interesting. If you drop it, or the match goes out, you lose that encounter. If you get it in time... You succeed, you know, narratively, you might have a few injuries and that sort of thing, but you're not permanently slowed or damaged in some way. And you get an item that you can then use to immediately defeat an encounter and you describe what it is. The only restriction is that it cannot be a light source because Hmm. the matches are literally the thing that your character has in the darkness. Wow. Yeah. And then at some point, the matchbook passes back and forth. So when the GM has it, it's the same thing, except that you have to hand the match off. <laughs> it's a really interesting sounding game. Very intimate, very intense, like any one-to-one gaming session like that would be. So I, I'm pretty excited just kind of by the concept. And maybe I'm not even as interested in A Scoundrel in the Deep, although it's really cool sounding, as the idea of sitting down to do a one-on-one game that's designed for that rather than well, we don't have enough people for a D&D game, but eh, let's try it anyway. Yeah. I really am kind of wanting to do something like that. Do you have any others? Kind of would like to try Drama System, just because I've heard so much about it, and the idea of the dramatic polls and stuff is interesting, and I've been watching a little bit of TV on uh, Netflix and stuff, both for um, just personal entertainment and also for my appearance on the Gameable podcast, which... I think we'll be dropping sometime around this episode, but I could have the schedule wrong. So in respect to them, I'm going to keep the topic off the table for now. Right. But knowing what I do know, drama system would work very well for what you're talking about with them, or at least certain elements of it. Yeah. In fact, actually, that was the system that I went to in that episode. Perfect. Let's tease this some more without revealing anything. (laughs) Hey, I'm, I'm amazed I haven't given it away yet. I kind of am too. If you follow us and them on Twitter, you know what it is anyway, so... Mm, yeah, probably true. So those are what we're looking forward to. Um, listeners, if you want to tell us or each other what you're looking forward to, please let us know, because I guarantee we missed something awesome. Oh, and this isn't an exhaustive list. I narrowed it down to the half dozen or so that I was the most interested in. In fairness, my list of games we want to try in 2017 is things I haven't played yet. Yeah. 
Like, I don't care how bad it is or how old it is. With a few very rare exceptions, I kind of just want to try things. Let's move on to our Patreon question. Yes, let's. Okay, cool. Jim Namban. All right, Jim, let's see what your question is here. Assume your group has decided not to use maps and minis. Maybe it's a mental challenge. Maybe you have blind players, and he wanted us to give a shout to uh, Going In Blind D&D on Twitter, which sounds cool, and we need to check that out. Doesn't matter. You're decided. How are you going to handle things like range, area of effect, flanking, etc.? I know how I would like to handle it, but I think it's a fun and useful experiment. Peter, how do I handle games without maps and minis? Uh, it's pure theater of the mind. <laughs> yeah. You kind of, we kind of, uh, try and picture where stuff is if that's important. And otherwise we kind of use movie logic. Like, is it reasonably plausible that you would be able to do the thing that you want to do? Okay, well then go for it. Yeah. And frankly, I think that's a very good way to proceed. If you're going to take the tangible stuff off the table and you're not going to track everything in excruciating detail, you might as well use the advantages of doing things in your head instead of just the setbacks, right? Yeah, I kind of borrow a little bit mentally, and I don't make this explicit in almost any encounter where we're doing theater of the mind combat. I borrow pretty heavily from fate, where there are, in my head, zones. The way fate works, and I don't know actually if this is true in Fate Core, but at least in the earlier earlier versions of fate, they kind of did things with zones where your movement was just, you move from zone to zone to zone on a map. I believe they still do that. It's been a while since I've read my fate books. Speaking of stuff that I'd like to play in the coming year. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If there are smaller zones, that kind of implies an area where it's a little harder to move around. If there are big, wide open zones, uh, that basically says you can move pretty quickly across the map here, right? Because if you were measuring out in feet, moving four zones covers a lot more actual distance on flat open ground than, say, a crowded warehouse, right? Yeah. Uh, so I kind of mentally have a, all right, if one move would take you up to this group of enemies, another move would take you to this particular obstacle, there's a move over to the side that would take you over there. It's kind of almost node-based in combat. I kind of don't care about, like, corner-cutting distances in a lot of ways, Flanking is largely just, are you setting yourself up for a flank? Or has the narrative resulted in something where it's reasonable to say, y'all are being flanked or y'all are flanking, anything like that. Area of effect, honestly, is the trickiest one. Area of effect is often very much about, how can I manipulate the AoE of this spell or this effect? Hinder my opposition and not harm my allies? Uh, yeah, exactly. And often that's fuzzy. Yeah. Well, we ran into this in our D&D game a few sessions back where I was having them fight Horde of Skeletons. And that was kind of a special case because it was a skeletal railroad. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got a guy surrounded by skeletons who are trying to subdue him. Not kill, just kind of capture and drag. He casts a spell that explodes out from him and blasts them all away. Well, how do I handle saving throws on a group like that, right? Because I kind of want to keep it going, but I also want to give him some success. And we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. How do I describe the area of effect when I've kind of just given general dimensions of the area they're in in the first place? That's where it gets hardest. I think clarity of description is important. And I would say don't feel limited by the, the listed range on the spell in the same way that you're not feeling limited by exact movements and exact distances between monsters and that sort of thing. If it's, you can kind of get about half of them, cool, just run with that. Err on the side of generosity as the GM, because that will feel a lot less frustrating for players. You bring something interesting up there. One of the things that I think makes this work well is interesting description and description that leaves room for players to do more than one thing. Explain what you mean by more than one thing. Well, okay, so the skeleton example is probably not the best of one because there was only one way that that was going to go. Right. But let's assume that that was just a fight against some skeletons that were guarding something that we wanted to get to, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to just have it so your description basically amounts to this works or this doesn't work. You want, if something dramatic happens, for it to change the situation in some way. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to get into what we're talking about here in this episode as our main topic, but if you're doing theater of the mind, changing the environment is in many ways easier. Yeah. It's sort of like fate. You create something in the environment that you can use, and that's harder with maps and minis, because, you know, you gotta put something down to market, you gotta 
everybody remember it's over here. You got to indicate it in some way. It's kind of annoying. It doesn't yeah. work on a static map. But I can imagine in my head very clearly when I'm doing theater of the mind, hey, the fighter kicked a big tower of boxes over in this warehouse. So now there's this area of debris the pursuing uh, guards have to get across in order to chase us. That gives us a little more time to get into position and set ourselves or just run away. Yeah, that and depending works. on what was in those boxes, it could have changed things in an even more dramatic way. Sure. The floor could be littered with ball bearings. Something could be on fire. There could be escaped chickens running around. I mean, there's any number of things that could happen there. Right. And you know, that's also a good opportunity to say, cool, what was in the boxes that you kicked over? And then the player gets to go, um... Live chickens. Live chickens. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so now we're having fun, right? Yeah. Now you're in a clucking mayhem. Right. <laughs> that works better. And that's, I think, one of the most valuable parts of Theater of the Mind combats. It lets you be flexible in ways that maps just don't. I like maps. I really do. I make some decent ones if I have access to good tools. But I kind of prefer doing Theater of the Mind. A, it's less prep, but also B, you get to really have fun playing out a scene in your head in a more movie-like or novelistic way. Yeah, the the drama and the flexibility are, are hard to beat. The maps can be great for larger scale fights or ones where the environment itself and its dimensions and shapes are really super important to the fight itself. And I prefer maps for a dungeon crawl, where there's a series of things happening. If for no other reason, then it's easier to keep track of where you've been if you've got a map. I mean, yeah. a fight is one thing. An entire dungeon crawl is theory of the mind. That can get a little daunting, especially if you've got to split it up over multiple sessions. Unless it's very linear. Yeah. Yeah, unless it's the Great Hallway of Anserac or something like that. <laughs> right, exactly. So... There you go. That's how I handle it, and honestly, it's how Peter's handled it as well when he's GM'd, so. Yep. There you go. Jim, good question. Thank you. Uh, looking forward to your next one. Send that in. Jim's good about that, so. Hooray. Yep. Uh, by the way, we have a number of patrons who have not sent in questions, and we want to poke you all and say, hey, please do that. Yeah, send us some questions. Yeah. We just opened this up to some of the lower tiers. We would love to hear what you guys want us to talk about, so fire them off. Another gentle reminder, um... We've said this the last couple of episodes, but this doesn't all have to be serious business gaming stuff. I mean, you know, if you've got some little, you know, not terribly personal thing you want to know about us, you know, what kind of car do we drive or something like that, we'll answer that. Or, you know, if you just want us to opine about, I don't know, what kind of food we like for side dishes at Thanksgiving or so, we'll take those too. So absolutely. Let's move on to our main topic. Well, we should probably get our scripture out of the way first, huh? I suppose so. You want to take this first one? Yeah, this is Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And next, Leviticus 16, verses 6 to 10. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And we've got Romans 8.28 as our last one for this episode. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So tonight's topic is ultimately about dice. How dice significantly affect the story that we're telling in a role-playing game. That's the slings and arrows of outrageous plastic. Yep. And what we can do about that, <laughs> in, a, in a way. <laughs> and this topic kind of stems from, well, two causes. First, there was a discussion at the end of the last episode that we did about gaming stories, and we came down pretty hard on gaming stories that were basically, I rolled a bunch of crits, or I rolled a bunch of critical failures, or I rolled max damage four times and one shot the big monster, whatever. Those are boring. But we noted in passing that, hey, my dice rolled this way, and the story changed significantly as a result in a way that none of us expected. Those could potentially be interesting. The other part of this 
was a case where the dice rolled a particular way, and the story changed in an interesting way. And this was in our D&D game. And this yeah. is kind of a minor example, but it's still, I think, a useful example. So I wanted to talk about it very briefly. My D&D game is myself and then three players. And three players, three player characters, is not a lot for D&D. The math no. <laughs> is really kind of designed for four to six. Knowing that, I threw in a monster that I knew the party would have serious trouble with. They're in the middle of exploring a bit of forest that an Ettercap has taken over in order to get rid of the Ettercap. And along the way, deal with some small subset of the uh, herd of giant spiders this Ettercap is managing and has kind of created. Because Ettercaps are basically spider shepherds, and they're awful. Horrible creatures. Great for a party of good player characters to go beat up. <laughs> or, or two neutral characters tending towards good and one good player character in this case. But Right. But more to the point, you don't feel bad about it. No. Not at all. <laughs> Especially when the uh, neutral good character is a nature cleric. Yes. <laughs> but I threw in an encounter with a phase spider. Many D&D players will kind of cringe at that because phase spiders are horrible, horrible creatures. For those who don't know, this is a spider that gets to teleport. Yeah, th this evoked alien a little bit, actually. <laughs> well, and I'm going to get to that. The mechanics are kind of important for this story. Yeah. Basically, it gets to um, kind of sidestep to a different plane where it can see you but not interact. And then it gets to move around and then phase back in and attack. And it can do so pretty quickly. Now, it doesn't do it instantly, but I let it get kind of a surprise attack the first round of combat. This is basically the stalking thing that can come out of literally anywhere and attack you. And it's designed to be a, a scary encounter. And it was a hard encounter tending toward deadly for a group of three characters. In fact, I believe we determined that if it hit and I kept the damage by the book, it would, in one attack, bring Peter's character down to zero hit points. Yep. Pretty scary, because he's playing a cleric, and clerics are not exactly lacking on hit points. No, they're not exactly the squishiest thing in the in the book. That would be wizards. Very scary. Now, this thing phases in in front of a particular character, the fighter, and I roll an attack. And I'm just kind of to get the point across of, hey, look, this thing is surprising and scary and can come at you from nowhere. I said, all right, it has advantage on this attack because you're not expecting a spider to appear in front of you and attack. Now, in D&D 5th edition, having advantage means that you roll the same roll twice and take the better result. Right. Keep that in mind as Grant tells you the rest of this story. And this is a D20 system. Yeah. I rolled my two D20s, and then I had my wife read off the result to the rest of the player characters because I wasn't sure they would believe me. Two ones. It's a one in 400 chance, if my math is right. Yeah. Yeah, you rolled snake eyes. Yeah, on D20s. I've had that happen before, but... It's not common. <laughs> it's not common. Now, the fact that I rolled a critical failure, as it were, I rolled two ones, is not actually important. It could have been just any two failures, but it was a little more dramatic that it was two ones. Yeah. So that happened, and then the player characters grouped up back to back. Hang on a second. Stop here for a second, because there's another piece of good advice that you're glossing over. This monster fails to hit the fighter, right? Yes. The way that Grant described this in play was not, the monster does something bumbling and stupid. He actually had another giant spider um, stop and eat a small snake instead of attacking the party earlier in the evening, which was kind of funny. But in this particular case, he described this instead of as being the monster's failure as being the player character success. He said that the, the fighter, something kind of primal kicked in and he took a step back just as this thing came out of phase and mandibles closed like right in front of his face. One of the things that always annoys me, especially in D&D, &D, is the, the hit and miss. What does that mean when you miss? Yeah. I remember a, a horror story from Happy Jacks. Someone was talking about their first time in a in a D and D game, their first gaming experience. It was this big lumbering monster coming down a hallway, and like, all right, cool. Well, I shoot it with my bow and arrow. Uh, what'd you get? I, I rolled a nineteen on the d twenty. You miss. Now, setting aside that somebody's putting up something that can only be hit on a natural twenty for first level characters, the player's response was, "How do I miss it? It's huge. It's slow. It's not dodging." No, if the dice say you missed, you missed. My response would have been, okay, uh, you hit it. You don't seem to hit it in any place that's vulnerable. You're not going to miss something, yeah. a slow-moving target like this, if you are in any way a competent archer. <laughs> even even a semi-competent archer. Yeah, like, I would have hit it 
first learning to shoot an arrow when I got my archery merit badge in Boy Scouts, okay? Yeah. But did you hit it accurately and cause significant damage? That's a different question entirely. So changing how you narrate hits and misses and success and failure in general is a very useful tool for dealing with dice that end up with statistically improbable results or statistically extreme results. Anyway, so Phase Spider goes out of phase. The party does the usual everybody back-to-back thing. And then when it phases back in, they're ready for it. Oh, are we ready for it? (laughs) Just kind of by virtue of the way held actions work, they all get to go as it phases back in. In one round, they bring it down to two hit points. And again, there's a bit of a narrative thing here, right? Because Peter hits it very, very hard. And the other two deal a ton of damage. And my initial narration, you know, after Peter's hit was, you stop it dead in its tracks as it charges in. Because my thought was, wow, you did like half of its hit points or more with this incredibly strong damage roll. It's not going to want to come after you again. Well, so and my it's going character to stop. uses a warhammer too, so Yeah, right. There's a good narrative reason for it. Yeah. So anyway, bring it down to two hit points from like 33 or whatever. It goes away. And then I was going to just have it run away at that point, because it's like, wow, that is not easy prey. This but, may not be prey at all. Yeah. <laughs> But then the players did things that I think are less important to the story to lure it back out and finish it off because they did not want a phase spider running around in the forest. Or indeed on the island. (laughs) Right. So y'all dealt with it and that's cool, but I don't care about that part of it. We're really just talking about how the dice changed this encounter. There's something that Dan from Fear the Boots says a lot. Says that dice are the, the one last player at the table that everybody forgets about. Because dice change the stories we tell in role-playing games in very unexpected ways. And so the question I kind of want to ask you, Peter, is this. How much leeway should we give the dice to affect the story that we're trying to tell? As much as the group wants to give them, which (laughs) may or may not be the same from game to game. Or possibly from player to player in the same game. Yeah, or even player to player in different sessions. So this time we're playing D&D, right? Which is kind of a swingy system. It uses the D20 instead of a pool of D6s or, you know, other polyhedral dice like GURPS or Savage Worlds does, right? A D20 is a very swingy roll. Yeah. So you expect the dice to do big dramatic things. There's not a bell curve in play there. Correct. So I would say for D&D, kind of like we've been doing, you gotta let the dice do their thing a little bit. That swinginess is part of the game. For certain other games, that may not be the case so much. Um, Right. In Savage Worlds, for instance, the dice, I think, played a, a much less dramatic role. It was success and failure were much closer together in that game. And it's it was a totally different feel, too. You know, you're you're talking about people firing guns at each other instead of swords and bows and Uh this other kind of, you know, magic and more fantastical and more uh, flowery sorts of combat. Shadowrun is very gritty. So it's a lot of near misses. It's a lot of just barely got the person. It's a it's a different feel. And we're talking about combat because it's easy. But our Shadowrun game, I was actually fudging a lot of die rolls because I wanted to make sure that we were not hitting brick walls. Yeah. <laughs> we we can talk about that a little bit later in the episode. We've got some good advice uh, there, too. Hard one. <laughs> yes. But I fudged a number of rolls because I was looking at it thinking, all right, I rolled for this. Now that I'm looking at the die result, I should not have rolled this because there was a chance it was not going to go the way I wanted it to. And I think, you know, people... People look down, and I think rightly so, on cheating and fudging dice rolls. When a GM does it, oh, it's a fudge. When the player does it, it's cheating. That's usually how it goes, right? Fudging, I think, also is when it's in the player's favor. Yeah, cheating is if you're using it to screw the players, which is kind of a a universally maligned thing to do, and rightly so. We really don't even need to talk about that. But I think fudging is, well, I have to roll for this, but it didn't go the way I wanted, so I'm going to nudge it a little bit. That's, I think, where that comes from is really just, I didn't realize I shouldn't have rolled this. Yeah. And, you know, there are some games where I think that happens so much that people need to realize, wait a minute, we need to pick a different system, maybe one that doesn't have any randomizers at all. And those systems do exist. Oh, sure. There are ones that use things like cards and stuff and don't work like dice in the exact same way. That, you right. Know, there are some that give out points, you know, you have points to spend kind of against each other. 
that sort of thing. Not going to get into those exactly, mostly because I haven't <laughs> played many of them. Many interesting systems that we'd like to play someday and haven't yet. Right. See previous conversation. Yep. But I think in many cases, people need to kind of think if I'm fudging the dice a lot and my players aren't happy with the results because we're not feeling like the dice necessarily reflect our characters, maybe changing to a different system is entirely valid. It's one of the reasons I wanted to switch to Savage Worlds for Shadowrun, and one of the reasons we did. You don't like rolling pounds of dice at a time? No, no I love <laughs> rolling pounds of dice at a time, and I, I think it's amazing. But in some ways, Shadowrun's system doesn't fit the Shadowrun game we wanted to play. That's true. We wanted to play a very pulpy, pink mohawky, let's go have fun Shadowrun game that was a little more leverage than Shadowrun. Like, I could tell just from character creation, you guys were going to be the sneaky, competent dude, the kung fu action hero, and the big, tough dude who's also the driver. Yep. And that worked out, right? We had awesome road action scenes. Uh, I think driving around the um, the seaport, chasing a 50-ton rhinoceros equivalent, was a great deal of fun. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That motorcycle gang and that, like, the stunt duel that we got into, that was very cool. Right. I am terrified thinking about how that would have gone in the actual Shadowrun system, because I'm pretty sure that there just would have been disastrous consequences all around. Yeah, a whole bunch of people would have died and it wouldn't have been any fun. Right, because that wasn't the right system for the game. If you start seeing people fudge the dice or complain about the dice, think about what you're trying to get the dice to do. And again, if the system is correct, or if there's simply a case of players having different assumptions about what the general level of success is going to be in the game. Ultimately, dice are, what kind of success are we looking at? Some of them model success failure. Some of them model degrees of success. Some of them model consequences of succeeding, but I always get to succeed. There's all these different systems that people use, but ultimately it's, I've done something, let's move forward. It bears mentioning that the hit-miss damage thing that D&D does for combat is not by any stretch of the imagination, the only way to go. Absolutely. So if people are feeling frustrated, it may be that they went into it wanting a different experience. If it's something like D&D, maybe they wanted to be more successful than they have been, right? Certainly frustration with how the dice are rolling is common, but it may also be, wait, no, I'm supposed to be the guy who just doesn't fail very much. Well, maybe D&D isn't the right system for that, because D&D is basically... Yeah, you, roughly speaking, have a 60% success rate on things you try, yeah. if you're good at them. That's about where the math is balanced. Other systems are, yeah, you always succeed, it's just a question of what you spend to get there. Maybe that's what they really want. But I think different assumptions matter a great deal. There are also people who just want to let the dice go crazy. Yeah, there are. I'm not really one of those people, but they do exist. I am not one of those people either, but I really admire them because what that really means is I am willing to adapt to what it, wherever the story goes when the dice take it in strange directions. I will say that the one caveat that I have on that is that I don't mind it in smaller scale games, convention games and stuff. I'm pretty well fine with the dice going wherever they want to go. I'm good with about anything in a con game, and that's because there's very little investment. And I think that does matter, right? How much yeah. are you invested in the results? Yeah. And um, now there, there was one con game that I was at at the last Fear the Con that I went to where the dice were going overwhelmingly in the GM's favor to the point where the characters couldn't make any progress. And since the GM was Michael Matthews, the game still went okay, but I don't think I've ever seen a GM so frustrated by constant success in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, you guys can't do anything, you know? It was just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And actually, that kind of brings us to a segue where sometimes it's okay to start fudging stuff. The thing that got our gaming group together in the first place, and I believe we've told the story at least once, was a previous Shadowrun game that several of us were in, where the GM was trying to do kind of the let the dice fall where they may deal with the consequences kind of a thing. And in Shadowrun, sometimes that can put you into a corner where you really can't get anywhere. It can. It also, I think, is another case of should the dice have been rolled at all? Yeah. So I, I'm going to join this game and it's it's a bunch of different, you know, player characters like, well, what what don't you have? Well, we don't have any elves or anything. OK, well, 
So I put together this kind of um, bow hunting survivalist elf from the, I believe, Canadian wilderness or something like that. And I was yeah. like, okay, you know, some shamanic abilities and stuff. Kind of a neat player character. Great. Put together this cover of this terrible band and we're going to try and cross this border. Yeah. And the GM rolls and stops for a few seconds. Silence permeates the call that we're all on. And he's like, well... They're racist against elves here, so they search you thoroughly, confiscate your gear, and send you back the way you came. Right. It was. Uh, it took a lot longer than that, for, yeah. which is another part of the, the game that was not good, but we're not going to get into that. But the end result was, I'm going to roll to see if this border guard is racist, or has prejudices. Oh, look, he does. Oh, he came up elves. Who's driving the van? The elf. Yeah, the brand new character on his first session. Well, <laughs> I think it was... No, that was the first session that I was That's in. right. That's right. We had another session before that that also had issues. But yeah, I want to add real quick, this is not to rag on the GM who was running this. This is just a case of we had completely different gaming styles and wanted wildly different things out of this game. I think he had some things to improve on, but some of it was also just wildly different gaming. Yeah, this is definitely not one of those places where the GM is a jerk and is, you know, toying with the players and picking on them for his own amusement. That was not no, what no, was no, going no. on here. <laughs> That's actually a good segue into handling extreme dice results. If you have a situation where an extreme die result or even an unwanted die result will cause major problems getting to the story, don't roll. Yeah. More than that, GMs need to learn to let go of the dice, especially when players have invested time in something to help them get around an obstacle. To use this example, right, the infamous border crossing here, okay? Yeah. We spent, I think, an hour, maybe an hour and a half, coming up with a cover story for getting across this international border. And a shocking amount of detail to go with it. Right. I mean, it wasn't just, uh, what do we do? It was, guys, I have an idea. Let's spend an hour and a half fleshing out this awesome idea. Incidentally... A shock band with a van full of shocking stuff is a great place to hide weapons and armor and ammo, I think. Because the more the, the authorities search, the more they wish they hadn't, and eventually they'll just leave you alone. Yes, natural disgust. Let, let me put it this way. The band was named something we cannot repeat on this show and maintain a clean or even unrated rating. <laughs> we would have to go full explicit. Incidentally, we still come up with album names and song lists for the band like five years later because we had a lot of fun with that idea. So that was the that was the cover story, right? And it was a lot yeah. of, all right, who plays guitar? Somebody has to play guitar at Shadowrun. I'll play guitar. Do you know how to play? No, but I'm going to say it's my instrument. Can we book a gig so that we can, you know, if they run a, a check, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to this place. Yeah, well, look, we're on the schedule. Yeah. We went all out trying to prepare this cover identity. And then the GM was like, cool, I'm going to roll the dice as if you had no cover whatsoever. Yeah. All of that work should, at least in my opinion, and I'm a little biased on this because I was a player and, you know, kind of felt stifled by this particular scenario. I feel like in that sort of situation, that much investment earns a success and more than a success earns new opportunities. Yeah, and I think in this particular case, in addition to the new opportunities and the success, it also earns you some fun narration from the GM. Think if our group in your Shadowrun game had done something like this. You would have probably given us a little bit of a story about how the, you know, the border crossing, like, opens the back of the van, starts going through the first couple of boxes, turns a little pale, and tells us to leave as quickly as possible and, like, opens the gate faster than normal and just... Yeah. We, we want you on the other side of the border. Go away. I don't <laughs> want to touch this. I need to go wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. Yes. That would have been a reward for all of that work. Yeah. That's okay. Again, the GM doesn't have to roll the dice. If you're gonna say, I can't have them stop here, don't stop them. Yeah. Uh, and I have made this mistake a lot. I still have that built in, oh, you want to do something? Cool, roll for it. Reaction. Yeah. It's not always healthy. And sometimes, sometimes D&D uh, &D doesn't really support a success threshold idea, like degrees of success. It's kind of fail pass. Yeah. But I still sometimes am like, did you roll really well? Yeah, all right, you get a little more. Did you roll badly? You get just enough to get along. Sometimes I do that because I have that instinctive, I should make you roll for this, but I don't want you to fail, so I'm going to make you roll, and cool, you get it no matter what you roll. 
And if you rolled well, I'm rewarding the investment that you had at character creation for that. Or sometimes stuff that's been narrated. I think I've done that a time or two. Yeah. In the D&D game, we're like, okay, this isn't on your character sheet, but your character has exhibited these kinds of traits. So yeah, you've, you have more. Well, a perfect example of this is we didn't have to roll any kind of social skills with Sal, at least not until the very end. Yeah. We kind of had some very strange and interesting conversations with the little four stock beholder, but... Well, I think also the fairy dragon. Yeah. You guys had put up with it. You'd reacted well. You'd kind of investigated. And then when you came out, it was just, all right, let's role play. Right? Yeah. And some of that is just, hey, I want to role play. I don't want to You know what? Actually, this is a perfect dice. example of what you were talking about with the time investment. We went through all of this and, you know, we set watches and one of our guys got put to sleep and the dragon pranked us in the night. We got up and we discovered all the pranks that this thing had played on us. And it's like, okay, what are we going to do now? What on earth does this thing like? Real quick note. Uh, Peter had a really good blog post about this encounter with the fairy dragon. Go look at that on our website. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. So <laughs> we we figured out that there was some dried fruit missing from our pack. So it's like, hey, this thing likes sweet stuff. So we went out and we did a little bit of extra foraging in the jungle and we found some fruit, which Grant did not make us roll for because it was a good idea and we were going to find some eventually. And my character, who actually has a little bit of culinary training from his time in the monastery because, hey, monks, you're bored. What else are you going to do but learn to cook things well? Sat down and made some fruit compote and then we sprinkled it with some other stuff and left it out for this fairy dragon like, okay, haha, you got us. Can we please talk now? Here's yeah. your tribute, little dragon. Yeah. I believe I had him waving a spoon in a kingly manner at some point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I believe you did as well. Also worth noting, we had previously established there was fruit all over the island. Yep. So this is not a case of roll the dice to see if you find the fruit that we've narratively described all over the place. You failed. There is no fruit here. No, that's boring. There goes your idea. There goes all of the narrative potential that you yeah. had. And now, if we were in a completely different part of the island with a different biome, and it's like, hey, we're out of rations, can I find some fruit around here? Then go ahead and roll for it. Right. But if the fruit is just a component of something larger that you're trying to do, eh, maybe not. Right. One thing I want to also add, sometimes the dice don't just roll in a weird way once. Sometimes you get, like, a string of unlikely successes or unlikely failures. Yes, I got pwned by uh, spiders that shouldn't have been much of a challenge to me earlier in that same session. Sure. In that same session, right? There was a spider who just was missing constantly. It was one spider just kept yeah. missing. I guess the derp spider. Right. And what I decided was it's attacking you, sure, but it also just saw like a snake. Yeah. And you know what's a lot easier prey? The little snake. A little snake. And so I had first attack roll. Yeah, it goes after this. Uh, it's something in the ground. Second attack roll. It got it and um, seems to have a little snake there. Yeah. Well, it looks like it ate a snake. Third attack roll. Oh, this one finally hit. Good. It finished eating the snake and goes after you. <laughs> the important thing was if it had kept missing, I would have kept it going. My explanation did not stop being real just because the dice started going quote unquote right. Yeah. I've had characters and I've played characters like this where, you know, I invent a reason for you know, something to go wrong. I'm screwing up really badly because of X. And then as soon as it goes right, oh, good, I threw that off. Hooray. Well, that's kind of boring. And frankly, it was bad role-playing on my part. And this is true, by the way, of GM or player. Once you establish something, run with it. Maybe you kind of succeed despite it, but then keep it around after the encounter. Make it something to deal with. You know, he's hung over today. His aim's off. Well, keep role-playing the hangover. Yeah. Maybe, you know, your dice luck is better and he's not missing as much in the next combat encounter. But that doesn't mean he's not going to be staggering around going, ah, oh, my eyes. Play that up. Have fun with it once you invent the solution. And GMs, if a player wants to explain unusual success or unusual failure in a way that indicates, hey, it's not the character succeeding in an unlikely way or failing in an unlikely way. There's some other influence. Don't shut them down on that. Your player is adding something to your game. That's awesome. Please let them do so. Yeah, and the end result is going to be identical. I mean, whether you fail because you're fighting on a ship and you're battling a stomach bug at the same time and you have to stop and puke over the side every once in a while, or if you're failing just because you're not very good at sword fighting, doesn't really matter in the end result of the game. A common trick that I use, and again, I'm going to have to go back to combat here just because it's so easy. If I've got a, a skilled fighter character, like our fighter in the D&D game, who is missing with attack rolls, it's not that he's missing, right? He's not taking big swings and just 
not making contact. The miss in this case is he's not finding an opening. And he's smart enough not to swing when there's no opening. And yeah. his opponent is not leaving him an opening because he's guarding well. He's using up the same amount of time in combat, but he's not feeling incompetent. Yeah, and in that in that case, his failure is not, you are written as awesome and suddenly you stink. It's, you're written as awesome, you're still being awesome. You know, your time will come, it just hasn't shown up yet. Right, and maybe your opponent is also pretty good. Yeah. I like getting away from the success-fail binary state that D&D has. It's one of my big complaints about D&D. Not even just success-fail, but awesome versus, you know, lousy. Well, I mean... Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, sometimes luck just is not with the player. The randomizer randomizes in a bad way. And that doesn't mean that all of a sudden this player character who has been written as being competent, who has been played as being competent, who has, you know, rolled as though they were highly competent up until this point, suddenly loses all of their competence. That is much more jarring than just, hey, the circumstances just kind of got real this time. You know, mm -hmm. it's... There's more here than just you. Yeah. And I think I've seen a lot of the same on non-combat roles from the guy who was running our werewolf game. Yeah. Uh, who's actually playing the fighter in my D&D game. I had my character as, you know, a good tracker, but I either botched or just completely failed a role that should have been fairly easy. And his response was not, yeah, you're bad at this. It's you can tell that somebody has done a great job of hiding this trail. You can't follow it, but they've done a good job hiding it. It's not that you are just suddenly bad. Yeah, there are other competent people in this world, and you just ran up against one. Yeah. One thing I do want to talk about is frustration. I think as Christians, this affects us simply because we need to be better at dealing with this and yeah. better at helping people deal with this when they get frustrated. Dice can be incredibly frustrating because they don't do what we want them to do. <laughs> let's let's yeah. be honest. We all have superstitions about dice. And sometimes randomness really stinks. Sometimes it does. And humans have a natural tendency to weight negative random results higher than positive random results. We tend to think we succeed more than we do, but we also tend to think that the odds are always against us. Even when you're kind of rolling 50-50, sometimes your dice may feel like they're just not doing well and you get frustrated. How to handle frustration? I'll be honest with you. I don't have good advice on that, at least how to handle frustration personally, and I wish I did because I desperately need it. I am very easily frustrated. It's a major failing on my part. I get frustrated so quickly, and it very quickly turns to anger. When we were doing the Virtues and Vices series, I had mentioned that wrath was one of my major flaws, right? If we were breaking it down just into those seven categories. Yeah. That is still absolutely true. How do you handle it? Uh, <laughs> scarcely better than you do, really, if I'm going to be totally honest. Fair enough. Um, I think the only advantage that I have on Grant and the reason why he asked me this question in the first place is I am perhaps a little bit better at masking some of those strong emotions than maybe is even healthy at times. Uh, that's possibly true. If I see it in someone else, I'll often try and, you know, lighten the mood or something like that or yeah. point out, hey, you know, you're, you've got this going for you. The other thing I might suggest to someone else is... Taking a break does Take help. a break, walk away. Yeah. Not a long one, right? You don't want to interrupt the game just because you're getting upset. But go get a drink of water or something, right? Just refill your cup. Just take a break, come back. Feign, it, feign a need to use the restroom if you have to. Just walk away for a couple of minutes and come back. Yeah, and if you're not rolling super well, find something you can do in a game that doesn't require rolling. This is something that I had to do in this previous game. I mentioned that I had a point earlier in the evening where I was just getting trashed by these couple of wolf spiders that should not have been as threatening as they were to my character. Yeah, you were just rolling badly. They were rolling well. It happens. And at some point I realized I can't count on the dice to do anything useful for me. What else can I do? And I started casting spells and stuff like that because those don't require as much die rolling. Now, it started using up a finite resource. Yeah, but it was also a good time to do it. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, if, if the odds are going against me, this helps balance those a little bit. And it also gives me something that I know I'll succeed on and hopefully help the rest of my party succeed too. Yeah. Um, I do want to say this. I think as Christians, we cannot ignore somebody who's getting frustrated at the table. Including if it's us. Right. It is very easy to do so. Nobody wants to be the guy who 
call someone out for getting frustrated. We, we have this built-in desire to just sort of look the other way politely, let them stew. It's not our problem. Well, yeah. I'm not saying be a busybody, but care for that person. Don't necessarily call them out for it. You're not looking to embarrass them or shame them. Rather, I'm saying care for them. They're not having fun. And maybe they really need to have fun tonight because there's something else going on. Or maybe they're just ruining the game for everyone else. Or maybe maybe it's just being ruined for them. And that's, you know, if you only get to game every so often, that can be frustrating in a way that gets outside of the game. It's incumbent on us to care for each other at the table. And being frustrated with dice, being frustrated with how the night's going may seem like a really silly thing to care for other people over. <laughs> Until it happens to you enough times. Well, I don't think it just has to happen to you. No, but that will drive it home. It will, but empathy is understanding understanding somebody's pain without having to see it happen to you first. Absolutely. And we are called to be empathetic. We're called to be understanding and love one another. That love is wanting the best for each other. Don't turn away from that. And it's so easy to do. I want to stress that it is very easy to do that because... <laughs> easy and tempting, frankly. We have this built-in desire to avoid awkwardness. and Just kind of let them do their thing. Don't. And that's maybe where I want to wrap this up. Don't let other people hurt like that. Dice are frustrating. That's okay. But letting people get frustrated is not. Yeah. I do want to also hear stories of weird things that have happened with dice and what you've done with those extreme dice results. And not just, you know, oh, I rolled a really good crit at a convenient time, but also here's how a strange die roll changed my whole game, my whole campaign. I want to hear stories like that from you, because I think, first of all, I can learn a lot from them, and I think we can all learn from each other. But also knowing that it's okay to do that is helpful for a lot of people. There's a, a weird sort of sense that sometimes people need permission to narrate differently and not get trapped in the same paradigm they've been in. And it's totally okay to do that. And I really want to know some narrative tricks you guys use. <laughs> yeah, and uh, along those same lines, if you guys have some good advice for dealing with frustration, love to hear that too, because clearly we both could use it. So Please, desperately need it. <laughs> I have a four-year-old. I need help <laughs> the, with all the, the frustration I can and get. and in life. <laughs> yes, Four-year-olds. Surprisingly frustrating. Love her to death, know, but... Surprisingly ooh. frustrating. Predictably frustrating is probably more... Still surprisingly frustrating, <laughs> despite <laughs> what I knew going in. Also, the infant is pulling up now, and that's also surprisingly frustrating, because everything we thought was out of reach, no longer out of reach. <laughs> it's just suddenly within reach again. Oh my, yes. <laughs> Hooray. We knew it was coming, but all of a sudden it's, no, that was safe. Why is it in your mouth? <laughs> it's not tasty. Why did you do that? Also, my four-year-old uh, poured out a whole Tupperware container of Cheerios onto the floor so she and the baby could have a Cheerio party. Oh dear. Yeah, that's what I came home to today. Oh dear. <laughs> my wife met me at the door just saying, there's a mess in the kitchen. Just laugh. We can sweep it up. <laughs> Speaking of frustrations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and on the note of Cheerios everywhere, I think we should wrap this up. Yes. If you want to follow us on social media, we do try and, you know, share stuff out from time to time. Things we think you would be interested in. And honestly, we kind of just like having means to converse with you. We are saving the game at Facebook, Twitter, Google+. Find us there. You can also find us syndicated through Inred's Ministries and RPG Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. If you want to support us on Patreon, uh, we've got a couple of expenditures that we are trying to plan out, and your support has been invaluable in getting that done. Incidentally, I am looking for a couple of, or at least one artist. Ruben's designs are awesome, but I'm looking more for like a, a character artist, somebody who can do portraits. Part of the Patreon money is to help pay people for the art that they produce, because I'm a big fan of paying artists for their work. Yeah, if artists can make a living making art, there's more art in the world. I don't see how this is a bad thing. Yes, I pay money for services. Yeah. If you know an artist or are an artist who can do that kind of work for us, uh, we would like to pay you. We kind of want to do like some cover art, splash art stuff. Get in contact with us or put yeah. people in contact with us because we would love to work with you and thank you for it and in every way we can. The money that people have paid in to our Patreon account, that's the kind of thing that we really want to use that for us, giving back to people who can do something awesome for us. One other thing, um, speaking of Patreon, we have promised that we are going to be doing some smaller, less scripted episodes for Patreon backers above a certain level. 
we should be getting the first one of those out around the time that this episode drops. Yeah, Peter is going to nag me and hound me into making sure that that gets done in the next week or so. (laughs) What do you think I just did? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's late. It's not going to, it's not quite going to Oh, it won't be tonight. (laughs) Yeah, so you'll have to nag me a different day. I'm sorry. That's okay. I can do that. (laughs) And on those housekeeping-y sort of notes, let's wrap this up. Thank you for listening, folks. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.